Hey, everybody. Uh, before jumping into the episode this week, I want to respond to the conversation from last week around the first episode with Alexis Ohanian about NFTs and Web3. Just to be clear, uh, Patreon is not currently developing anything in this category. We are always talking to creators about what they're using and learning about new technologies that we think give creators more leverage and ownership and help creators build their businesses. So in general, this podcast is not about Patreon's roadmap. It's about the creator economy at large. And that means that I will for sure talk about things that aren't necessarily what we're building, but are just new, exciting developments in the creator ecosystem. And with that said, let's jump into the conversation with Lee Jin. It's been definitely a roller coaster. I haven't really talked about it publicly. Like to raise fund one, which ended up being about twelve and a half million dollars, was like one of the hardest experiences of my life. I had to take a thousand meetings with prospective LPs and I was rejected by 90% of them. And on top of that, it was like quarantine. I was alone, basically like locked in my room, staring at a screen, pitching myself so many times to so many people most of whom said no. And so fun one was like immensely, immensely challenging. So does that mean that to raise $12 million, you heard no or nothing 900 times? Yes, I lost my voice a few times, cried between meetings, but we got through it and now we're here on the other side. She has become the single investor that people look to, to keep up with the creator economy. She's a former partner at Andreessen Horowitz. She's the founder of Atelier, now a a general partner at the Variant Fund, which is focused on the ownership economy. And at Andreessen, she published a now sort of famous blog post on the passion economy and the future of work. And what became clear was that Lee saw this whole world unfolding years before anyone else was talking about it. What I love about Lee is that she's a creator. She writes on Twitter. She writes on Substack. She's also a painter. She does portraits and still lifes and landscapes. She's not just an investor. She's a creator. And in September this year, the New York Times wrote a full profile on her, calling her the it girl of venture capital. She's an investor in Patreon. She's a fighter for creators. She's a powerful voice in the creator economy. And I couldn't be more excited to have her on the podcast. Lee Jin. And before we get into the conversation with Lee, I need to add the disclaimer here that I am an investor in Lee's newest fund. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for taking some time and, and chatting. I've been really looking forward to this and I have like a million things that I want to ask you. It's an honor. Honestly, I still... Lee is a nomad these days, so I did the interview remotely with headphones. If it sounds like I'm shouting, it's because I am shouting like an idiot who can't hear himself because he's wearing headphones. I feel like, Lee, your career has been wild. It's been amazing. You've become like the face of the creator economy in such a short amount of time. And... 
you know, you went from Andreessen to having, you know, a New York Times profile on you and your work in like two years. What's going on? One year. One year. Like, how did that happen? What is happening? What's your sense of of what's going on here? And what do you see that other people aren't seeing? Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, but it's really great to see it receiving the level of attention it is. I think like even just two years ago, it was a category that people weren't really talking about. Like people weren't really talking about the creator economy back in, you know, pre-COVID times. And then things really, really rapidly changed. And then at the same time, I've just always been, you know, very public and vocal in my writing and my thinking. And even though a lot of people were aware of the creator economy and watched the industry, I think it's relatively rare for people to put thoughts out into the public like I did, almost like a meta creator about the creator industry. And so therefore that, you know, snowballed into the fund and then the New York Times profile and all of these amazing opportunities. Lee is right on about the pandemic accelerating the creator economy. We absolutely saw that on Patreon. Uh, Within a few months, we saw 70,000 creators launch on Patreon, which was faster than any point in the company's history. Um, We saw 25% growth in member signups. We saw 200% month-over-month growth in music. We saw 100% month-over-month growth in video and podcasts and writing and journalism. The pandemic was absolutely an accelerant for the creator economy. What is the overlap of the passion economy and the creator economy, and how has your focus kind of shifted or adjusted with the market over time? The creator economy, it's become sort of synonymous with the passion economy now. And and when I describe the passion economy, a lot of people are like, oh, you're talking about creators. Initially, I envision it to be even broader than just content creators on the internet. I really envisioned it as like, Any type of skill or service or knowledge that a person has, they could offer that for sale on the internet, connect to potential customers all around the world and make a living from that. So no matter if you were um, a skilled, you know, songwriter or like in China, there's platforms connecting farmers, selling produce to customers in cities who want fresh produce, or maybe you're an expert in a topic and you're offering a course. Like that's what I thought of as like a passion economy platform and a marketplace that could support that type of work. Whereas the creator economy historically has been really synonymous with creating content on the social media platforms. And I think there's been a bit of conflation of them recently. And I think everyone has had to adopt the behaviors of a content creator and use these social networking platforms in order to build a customer base in the first place. So it's become an essential part of the toolkit for any online entrepreneur. But I think of the passion economy as this umbrella term that encompasses content creators, but also tons of other types of work. There's definitely an overlap between Lee's original vision for the passion economy and what people are now calling the creator economy. But one of the things that I think makes this whole space vague is that everyone is using this term creator, but there's no canonical definition of the word. LinkedIn has creators, Adobe has creators, Facebook has creators, YouTube's talking to creators, but it's undefined. So when I use the term creator, there are a few things in particular that I mean, and that Patreon means, and so I'll offer some of those shared attributes. Not so much as a comprehensive definition, but just as 
commonalities that I think creators share and some commonalities that make us unique as a type of person uh, on the internet. So the first thing is we spend most of our waking hours dealing in one-to-many relationships. We communicate with masses of people at once. That's our focus. And that's not to say that we don't have one-to-one relationships. Of course we do. Um, but the most of our time awake is spent on one-to-many relationships. The second thing is the relationships that we spend most of our time on are asymmetric and often parasocial. And what I mean by that is I remember playing shows with my band Pomplamoose and fans would come up to us after the show and tell us that they felt like we were best friends. And I'd be staring at a person that I'd never seen once in my entire life. And this person was telling me that they felt closer to me than they felt to many of the people they saw on a daily basis. That's asymmetry. That's more like a follower network than a friend graph. The third thing is we use media to communicate and and say what we want to say. Uh, We use text and audio and imagery and video, and we're good at telling stories, and we we manage our one-to-many relationships through media creation. And then the fourth thing is we use the internet as our primary means of communication. We take advantage of the democratized pipelines that are available to billions of people on the planet. We don't rely on the sort of pre-existing gated channels of distribution that have historically been available to only the privileged few. So when you hear me using the term creator, those are some of the attributes that I'm talking about. At what point did you feel like, you know what, I I don't want to be a part of a larger institution. I want to do this myself. I want to start my own fund. I'm going to I'm going to make this move to Atelier and, and found this company as opposed to, you know, joining a partnership with a lot of resources and time and brand that's been established mm-hmm. and all that. What made you want to take that leap? I had been at Andreessen for like maybe around three years when I published The Passion Economy and the Future of Work blog post. And that was the blog post that I think kind of took on a life of its own and and just became just the rallying cry of a ton of these founders. And afterwards, the overwhelming amount of support and affirmation I got from the market, meaning from founders and builders after I published that post, it was the first time that I thought to myself, like, wow, maybe I can actually be like my my own fund manager and, and do this and create something totally around this thesis because it was just so apparent to me that that piece had struck a nerve and um, like there was this outpouring of like you've put into words something that I've always tried to describe to other people and didn't have a way of vocabulary to describe it. And I, I just realized that there was this like once in a lifetime probably shift happening in terms of how the next generation thought about work and what it meant for them to earn an income on their own and to be an entrepreneur. And I wanted to be at the front of that wave. And I wanted to be able to make this my career exclusively and focus on this thesis. And I think that's 
that's a thing that is hard to do when you're at a larger firm that is, you know, billions of dollars and you have to cover every single sector within consumer and enterprise and everything else. Like I knew that I I love this thesis and I wanted to see it through. And beyond that, I wanted to focus on early stage investing, which is where I felt like I could offer the most help to founders. And that was really only possible um, to its full ex- extent if I spun out and split off and, and did my own thing. And furthermore, I think being my own fund manager and being a founder allowed me to establish so much creator empathy because essentially I was living that thesis of the passion economy. I want to read you something you wrote. Yeah. You said, um, in general, I believe the new currency of leadership is authenticity and vulnerability. That means we're moving away from an era where investor hubris and grandiosity was appealing to one in which founders are more attracted to investors who demonstrate humility and compassion and who are authentic, relatable human beings, each with their own sense of mission. After all, a cap table is a reflection of who the founder desires to enrich in the world. I stand by those words. Yeah, I think authenticity and vulnerability now are more prized and more valued and more sought after than like domination um, and a sense of like being all powerful. And I very much encourage founders to view their cap tables as a tool, like as a weapon that they can use to affect change in the world. And I even think of this myself as a, as a fund manager, like who I decide to accept money from in terms of my limited partners is in a very direct way, like affecting change in the world. It's directly like enriching some people who you've accepted as investors and not enriching others who you decided not to include in the fund. And so when we were raising our second fund, for the first fund, it was a bit different, like beggars can't be choosers. But the second fund, when we could be choosers, we decided to prioritize on one hand, like nonprofits that had missions that we really resonated with. And then on the other hand, we also prioritize builders in our networks, such as yourself, um, who are doing amazing things, bringing amazing things into the world, who can also help our portfolio companies in building who, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we feel like if these types of people are going to become wealthier as a result of the work that we do, then we think that actually accelerates progress in the world. I love the way Lee refers to cap tables as a reflection of who you want to enrich in the world. From a creator's perspective, that's why I loved Gumroad's fundraise from creators. Gumroad's a badass company. I think Sawhill's an amazing founder. And when Gumroad did a fundraise from creators, they were choosing to put creators on the cap table. They were choosing to enrich creative people, to let creators participate in the upside of the value that they were creating for Gumroad as a company. I just think that that's awesome. And from a founder's perspective, What Lee's saying also really matters to me. One of the questions that I asked investors when Patreon would go out to raise money was, who are your LPs? There were moments in Patreon's trajectory where we needed to raise money, we couldn't be choosers, but most of the time, who the LPs were mattered. Because personally, I'm way more motivated to return money to nonprofits and university endowments and pension funds than I am to institutions whose work doesn't excite me. 
see that trend playing out? You, you know, it's been a year and a half since you wrote this, two years since you wrote this. Is that what is happening? Is that the future of VC? I think the future of VC is like a world in which venture capital doesn't exist um, because I think it is like one of this whole job of even being a capital allocator, if you think about it, is like fundamentally pretty unfair. Like, why is it that there's class of individuals called VCs get to have a job and get to have a pretty good job? It's because they have access that other people don't have. And it's not that other people aren't smart or don't have great insights or don't know how to pick well. It's it's that they don't have access in the form of like, they don't live in Silicon Valley. They don't know like the founders. Maybe they don't have access to capital and like know the LPs to fundraise from. And so I think eventually where I'd like to see us move to, and, and I think if I do my job right, like what happens in the world is that the role of VCs diminish. And instead it's a world in which anyone with knowledge and insights and unique like thoughts are able to invest in all of the companies that VCs are able to invest into. In other words, like everyone becomes an investor, everyone can invest in all of these asset classes that are currently, you know, only available to, to accredited or qualified purchasers. And so the role of VCs becomes much more diminished in the future. And when you say if you do your job well, I'm assuming you mean if your fund succeeds, you put yourself out of a job. Correct. Yes. If if our thesis is realized, which is um, the ownership economy idea of like all products and services are going to eventually be owned and operated and built by their users, then that necessarily means that, you know, instead of a VC providing growth stage financing, the company exits to the community and the community provides that access to capital. And so if this ownership economy thesis really is fully realized, then there are no more VCs. And that's the, that's the bet that you're taking. Can you give us a sense of how you think that's going to play out and what time horizon you see for that playing out? I mean, it's already playing out now in specific like segments and corners of the market. So um, it's definitely not like uniformly distributed, but I think the future is already here somewhat if you look in particular places. So just to give you an example, a lot of founders building projects right now in the NFT space, they don't raise capital from VCs. Instead, what they do is they just mint NFTs and sell them on the market and they're able to raise a few million bucks that way, and that funds the development of the project. So like VCs don't enter the equation, and instead it's like it's community funded essentially, and the community receives an NFT in exchange for providing that funding. And that NFT could be an asset that accrues value as the project is more successful. Um, an example of this is like Loot, which was this NFT collection that was initially created by Dom Hoffman, who was one of the co-founders of Vine. He minted um, like almost a thousand NFTs called Loot, which were basically like just images that had text items on them. They were kind of like fantastical objects, kind of like Dungeons and Dragons style of a list of just objects printed on a card as an NFT. And those were launched into the market, like people could mint them and own them. And so in that case, like there, there were no VCs involved in the 
creation of that project, like people just became owners of these NFTs. And now there's a massive community that's building projects on top of that without any funding from the outside world. And so maybe then I guess the question for you is with the new fund, how do you see that playing out for you? Do you think you're going to raise a few more funds, make this world come true, and then do something else? Or is the strategy to to be one of those funds that's really, um, uh, you know, a, a part of those few funds that remain? In other words, is this long term yeah. or is this are you building? Is this uh, is this a suicide mission? If that I makes like sense. it. Maybe um, a dark I, way of framing I like the it, dark but. metaphors. Um, I think like. Each of us on the team, and there's three general partners, um, myself being one of them, we we may all have different views on this. And and like if you ask them, you might have a different answer. But in general, like my preference and my predilection of where I would like us to take this is to go the more community driven approach to be one of those like very value additive like entities that forms around a, a special like super valuable community of people who can actually help these portfolio companies succeed. And if we can do that, then we play a lesser role as individual GPs, but we take a more community-driven approach to making decisions, to sourcing deals, to helping our portfolio companies grow. And it becomes less institutional and more like a bunch of people in the community who are influential, like pulling together capital, maybe having LPs and deploying that into deals. Um, so I would rather be a part of this world and this approach of building out a value additive network of contributors who are pulling together capital and deploying it in a community based way. Love it. Um, so I guess it's the suicide mission approach it's the suicide or mission. just like the <laughs> radical, like kind of evolution approach. I would, I would put it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's inspiring. It's exciting. Thank you. I mean, it's just what a fun time to like be a person alive right now. So, you know, a lot of people are talking about Web3. People are talking about NFTs and crypto and there's a million companies popping up. Um, the new fund is focused on, I guess, what? What are the components of this space that are the technological enablers of the vision that you see besides the kind of headlines of NFTs, Web3, crypto, et cetera, blockchain, et cetera? Yeah. So this new fund is focused on the thesis of the ownership economy, which is the idea that in the future, all internet products and services are going to be owned by their users, the participants who are using them. And um, early examples that we often point to of this are Bitcoin and Ethereum, where the network operators underlying those assets were rewarded with their native tokens, Bitcoin and Ethereum, Ether, uh, respectively. We think that that model is going to diffuse into consumer networks in general and be what powers a lot of next generation multi-sided platforms. And to me, like that is the fundamental innovation of crypto is the power that it gives networks to distribute value in the form of tokens as easily as you transmit information on the internet. Like today, it's trivial to transmit a packet of information to someone else on the internet. It is not trivial to send money or to send value or to give out equity. And tokens makes that vision possible. We're not just investing because we want to make more money out of money. That is not our 
MO as investors. Obviously, we we want to do well financially and we have a fiduciary duty to our LPs. But more broadly, like we exist for this other mission, which is that we want to change the world and we want to make the world more fair. Like that was from day one, always my North Star goal in life of how do I correct all of these injustices that I see in the world. And I think one of the biggest sources of unfairness today is both unearned privileges and unearned disadvantages. And that translates into the broadening wealth gap that we see in the world today, um, in which the middle class is shrinking and economic disparities are widening. So that's like the broader framework for my whole life. And at this point in my life, I've chosen venture capital as the tool that will help me address this problem with the greatest amount of impact. And so the ownership economy idea is really how do we distribute ownership more broadly in society and in the economy to where anyone who's contributing value to a network is able to earn tokens that grow in value and that can help them achieve financial freedom. That is so powerful and um, such a wonderful articulation of this space uh, and like what you're trying to do that I think really gets to the core of it. Um, what's resonant about it for me is that is exactly where Patreon came from. You know, eight years ago, I remember staring at those fucking ad revenue dashboards feeling like I am contributing so much value to this ecosystem, like millions of minutes of people watching my creations and comments and passion and people and community and fire and energy. And I get paid 200 bucks for contributing all of that to that ecosystem. And my anger came from a place of like, that is not equitable for creators to be contributing so much to those ecosystems and to not participate in the upside that they are helping to create. That sucks. It's unfair. And a world in which users do not participate in the upside of the platforms that they are helping to create, I don't think that world will continue to exist for very long. I think it doesn't make sense. Precisely. One of my aha moments came when I was teaching a course about angel investing for content creators, for social media creators. And like during the course of this program, I just, I realized like, holy crap, like creators don't have any money. Like most of them have no money to invest. Most of them were not accredited investors. Accredited meaning you have to have over 200K of income per year for two years or like have net worth over a million dollars. Most of them didn't fit that criteria. So like immediately they were not allowed to angel invest at all into private companies. And then if they somehow became accredited, they had like $5,000 that they could put into these businesses. And just like the amounts of ownership that they got, it wasn't meaningful relative to the value that they were contributing. And I just felt like, oh, like, I guess I should have realized this, but I like creators aren't in a position to invest, so they can't capture the upside of the platforms they're contributing to. And that feeds back into how they have no money to invest. And they're just sort of like locked out of the system. And so we just need to like completely reconfigure how ownership works in order for other people to be able to participate 
in the first place. And so I, I now firmly believe like, I think angel investing is inaccessible to a lot of people, but instead they should be able to earn ownership instead of just buying it as employees do. I love Lee's answer to this question. And what I love about it is that she knows what problem matters to her and she sees her field and her industry as a tool that she can use to solve that problem. For me personally, I have zero desire to be an entrepreneur. When people ask me what I do, I do not say that I'm an entrepreneur. I, I don't identify as that kind of person. Patreon is not one company in a series of companies that I plan to build. I don't care to build companies. Um, Patreon for me represents a very specific solution to a problem that I care about. And that problem comes first. So to help creators turn their dreams into real functioning businesses, I felt like building a company was the best way to solve that problem. And that means that ultimately Patreon is just a tool. It's an instrument, it's a method. And what matters is the purposeful objective behind it. What are the companies, the, the Web3 companies in particular, that you're really excited about? And kind of what are the categories of emerging use cases and creator business components that you see coming out of Web3 that are really important? Yeah. Um, in general, like the, the commonality is expanding access and enabling like new types of creation that weren't possible before or expanding creation to a new set of users who previously weren't able to access it before. So an example of this is like, um, I invested in a company called Syndicate Protocol, which is building a platform that enables anyone to spin up an on-chain investment vehicle and thereby like dramatically lower the barriers to starting a fund. So they're investing in different types of projects and companies that perhaps wouldn't have been funded before. So it's not content creator per se, but it's like a type of value creation that had previously been unable to be accessed by a huge swath of the population. So I'm really excited about that one. Another project that I've backed is called Mirror, um, like Mirror, like the reflection mirror, um, which is basically like a crypto native creative suite where creators are able to publish their work and raise crowdfunding from a community of people. So using Mirror, there's been tons of examples of like very interesting creative projects that have gotten funding straight from the community. So an example of this is like the Ethereum documentary, which is currently in production, was able to raise $3 million from the community to fund the documentary from users all over the world. Um, recently, there was a m musician named Daniel Allen who raised, I think, almost $100,000 to fund his first EP. And the idea is that then the royalty streams from all of those streaming services are going to flow back to the token holders who participate in the crowdfund, which is super interesting because it changes, again, the nature of like what it even means to be a fan. You go from being a passive fan who's just like patronizing someone to being an investor with upside. And you can imagine that that changes the types of behaviors that they even decide to take on. 
And then there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening in the play to earn gaming world where people in developing countries are earning tokens from blockchain based games and converting that into real world income. So Axie Infinity is an example of this. Um, it's a game that is now being played by, I think, 2 million daily active users and people are earning a livelihood from playing this game. And I'm an investor in YGG Yield Guild Games, which is trying to help new users get onboarded to these video games. What are the like the hardest problems right now for this space generally? What does the space need to like accelerate and build this world as quickly as possible? Yeah, um, that's definitely like a question that is in my mind all the time. I'm always thinking about how do we onboard the next 100 million users, which is an order of magnitude up from where we are right now. Right now there's MetaMask, which is the dominant Ethereum wallet that people need to install to access these decentralized applications. It has an install base of about 10 million users. And so in the scale of the internet, like that's still a very small portion of the internet. So I think about how do we onboard the next wave of users? And I think it's going to come from two directions. One is the UI and the tooling being much easier for people to use. So I think the day when my mother understands how to use something like Mirror and publish a post and run a crowdfund will be when I feel like, okay, this is easy enough for normal people to use and access. So I think there's going to be like easier, better interfaces for wallets, for how you purchase your first crypto, for how you sign on to these applications. But then I think from the other direction, there's going to be new applications and use cases that get developed that get people to move over these hurdles and to like, there's a compelling enough carrot on the other end such that people are willing to jump through the hoops. So for instance, like for Axie Infinity, it is extremely hard to get started on that video game. Like I, I tried to play Axie Infinity, had to download not only MetaMask, but another wallet because they're on a different blockchain and then bridge over your assets, purchase three NFT characters to play the game. Like there's a bunch of friction, but the fact that 2 million people largely from developing countries are playing that game every day just showcases that when there's a compelling enough value proposition, people are willing to adopt new behaviors and new technology in order to access those benefits. And I think that's what we saw previously with like, smartphone adoption is like this behavior was foreign. People had to learn how to type on a screen with no buttons, but people all did that because what was on the other side was that much more compelling. How has it been building a fund by yourself? And have there been really tough moments or has it, is it different? Is building a company different than building a fund? It's been definitely a roller coaster. Especially in the early days, I, I think I didn't know how to delineate between myself versus my work. And I, I still struggle to separate my self-worth from like how the fund is doing and how me as an investor is doing. Like they are really one and the same to me. Raising the first fund, by the way, was like one of the hardest experiences of my life. I haven't really talked about it publicly. Um, Will you right when now? You're going through it. We can talk about it. Yeah. Would you be open to it? Um, I mean, just high level, like to raise fund one, which ended up being about $12.5 million, I had to take a thousand meetings 
with prospective LPs and I was rejected by 90% of them. So you can think of fundraising for a fund as like someone told me early on, just think of it as a funnel. Forget the no's, just keep doing meetings until you get to the yes and there's a conversion rate and eventually you'll like raise the full fund. What that glosses over is like the emotional impact of literally being on 15 hours of phone calls per day, pitching yourself and then not even hearing response back because in the LP world, like they don't even follow up. Most of the times it's not like VCs have become pretty well behaved because they're forced to. And now you have to like communicate and like be transparent and stuff like that. LPs that hasn't happened yet. It's like VC was, you know, 30 years ago. Like there's just crickets. If if they're not investing, like you'll never hear from them again until you do fun too. And then they come back. Um, but like just that was so challenging. And on top of that, it was like quarantine. I was alone, basically like locked in my room, staring at a screen, pitching myself so many times to so many people, most of whom said no. And then, I mean, I could, I could write a book about the whole experience. It's like, I, I also felt like it was, it was difficult because I don't look like your typical VC and you can even tell like I'm I'm not your typical VC like the, the vision that I paint it's not how a normal VC talks about themselves and what they're trying to do and so I was just like this weird creature that like a lot of people didn't know what to do with and so fun one was like immensely immensely challenging to raise and I remember at around like six million dollars I had gotten to like six million committed and I was like maybe I just stop and like just like I just have a six million dollar fund and and deploy that because I was making zero progress. So those were the early days, but then made it through, raised the fund. Fund two was a lot easier. And and now I'm not alone. I started my first fund as a solo GP, but now I've merged it in and have teammates. And but like it's never easy as a founder. Like there's still ups and downs and recruiting is hard. Brand building is hard. Creating content on top of our day jobs is hard. Like, but I, honestly, like I could not be more grateful for what I do. And I just think that I have the best job on the planet. And I can't believe that I get to do this and like make a living from this. Like that's, that's so cool. And <laughs> like, I, I just feel very grateful. I just want to double check on something you said. You said you pitched a thousand funds. Yeah. Yeah. And ninety percent a thousand. And 90% mm-hmm. said no. So does that mean that to raise twelve million dollars you heard no or nothing nine hundred times? Correct. Correct. Yes. That that was the process. Um so I lost my voice a few times, you know, cried between meetings, but we got through it and now we're here on the other side. You are a badass, Lee. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away and grateful for what you're doing for creators and what you're doing for the world and, uh, and feel really privileged to have some space to talk about the future with you. To be on this podcast with you, it's just really such a privilege. And I feel very honored to get to be here and to have this conversation with you. And I'm just very appreciative of all of your support throughout these years. I think Lee is just such a special thinker and visionary, and she has so much grit and positivity. I'm just so grateful to her for making the time 
and for her insightful thoughts. And, and thank you to everybody for listening. At Patreon, we're actively recruiting the best product designers and engineers and builders in the industry. So if you want to help us build the future of the creator economy, please head over to patreon.com slash careers. And if you like this episode, you want to hear more, you can listen to our last episode with Alexis Ohanian, or you can subscribe to hear future episodes wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts. Huge thank you to the producers, Dave King and Joe Smith, and also the Patreon team internally helping with this podcast. Brian, John, Kate, Nikhil, Sandeep, Veronica, and Will. Massive thanks to that crew. Okay, everyone. See you next week. Thanks for listening.